You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Before we jump into our analysis, I did want to clarify something. At the very end of this episode, you'll hear us talking about taking a break. Yes, we have finished up our Pioneer series and we're taking a few weeks off, but we're still going to be releasing our patrons only Q&As every single week. So if you are a supporter there, we thank you and we'll keep producing those recordings during this time. And then our full episodes will resume in May. There's more details about all of this at the end of the episode. All right. So here is the analysis with me and Stella. Hi, Stella. How are you? I'm very good. Um, well, here we are for a kind of post-match analysis. We're going to analyze <laughs> the series and especially the second part of the series and what a roller coaster we've just been through. I think we're both exhausted and looking forward yeah. to maybe having a break. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that yeah. later. <laughs> but first of all, I suppose what we have to think about is the people we interviewed have really, I think, Sasha, they've opened our minds They've shocked us. We, 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 we're sometimes blithering wrecks afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we've been, we've been really, we've been really energized by it, but also really kind of like we've really gone to the real depths and extremes of gender and found out so much. Yeah. And I, I hope this hour will be enough to analyze it and we might revisit it forever more. Yeah. In different episodes. I, I think. I mean, as a therapist, as a person who feels things really strongly, I have to say I was very surprised by the psychological and emotional toll that these conversations have been having. I mean, there are some discussions where we finish our our meeting and I do the tech stuff. And then for days and days after, I'm just replaying things that were said or moments where I felt confused or shocked. So this has been a really intense series and I'm very, very glad that we have a chance together, the the old school duo here to kind of talk (laughs) this through because it's been, it's been very powerful. Yeah. And I'm really proud of it. Actually. I'm really proud that we got those extraordinary people to interview us or to have interviews with us. And we got so much information from them. But I also think when you're a therapist, you just ask the questions that will yield the most answers. And the two of us just go into that zone. We do it so naturally Mm -hmm. without even thinking of it. And we're not challengers. We're we're no kind of like cutthroat journalists. We're just saying, oh, really? Is that what you think? Tell us more. And that could be presumed by people who didn't know our, our M.O., that, that we're agreeing, but that's not what a, ther- a therapist would never go. What the hell are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Don't you know? People the <laughs> right, that's not words. in our language. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't say such things. We just yeah. we're so used to there's a kind of a suspension of disbelief when you're a therapist that you just walk into the zone of the person who's speaking and you just find out what they're thinking. And that's you ask right. all the questions to find that's that right. out. And I think that has served us very well. Yeah, but now we're uh, uh, we're not in our therapist zone here. What we're in is mm-hmm. our analytical zone right. of what's going on here. It's and almost so, like how you would process, uh, you know, a complicated client with a supervisor. I mean, you finish the session where you've kept all your real thoughts and emotions at bay, and then you go, "Oh my god, I just had the most intense conversation." Here's what I here's was what so I'm thinking. Triggered. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah yeah so I was I know I was very disorientated from a, from a, a couple of sessions that we had a couple of interviews I think what's most on my mind would be um what I would uh, describe as the as DeVries and Steensma they really stuck in my mind as as that interview needs a lot of analysis and also the Anne Lawrence one which yes. kind of it went all sorts of places that I didn't quite expect. And so w- which will we go for first, do you think? 
Let's start with DeVries and Steensma. So as the as of recording this, we have just kind of published DeVries and Steensma. And so I know working on the, the tweet stuff and the quote cards, I, we have a lot of fresh on our minds. So I feel like the first the first thing that really stood out to me was that you asked DeVries, or we both asked DeVries about her patient zero, right? Which was oh, yeah. this person she transitioned when the per, the young female at the time, 16 or 17, and we asked her about this patient and she said, you know, interviewing this patient who was in such distress about her developing body made me realize that b- blocking puberty was going to help a lot of people. And I think the first thing that comes to my mind hearing that is, well, that's peculiar because as somebody in the psychological field, it's quite normal to meet people under extreme distress And it takes a really long time, at least in the work I do, to figure out what is this distress about? What are the underlying patterns in this person's life? What is this person's relationship with their family, their social culture, like all of these things? So I found it interesting that within one conversation or, you know, one, one patient, she felt confident that blocking puberty was going to help this person because there's the story, the surface story, and then there's the like, What's the real story? So I found that really interesting. Yeah, Fritz Perls, uh, the psychologist, used to say, what's going on now? What's really going on? And that's how we work. But what I thought about when she said that was, oh, so this isn't because of some gender identity that's within him that needs to get out. This is because of distress for per- for periods, presumably, or, or, or puberty. That was one thing that lodged in my mind. I went, oh, that, that's, on, that's interesting. And the second point was... Um, avoidance generally contaminates your future. And so if you're going to practice avoidance, you're pushing, you're kicking the can down the road, you're inevitably going to be dealing with it. And you've actually created a bigger problem by um, making it bigger rather than counselling them as it's happening and Mm -hmm. letting them deal. Like where was the puberty blockers, you know, it was going to come. The, the 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 issue was coming on on one level or another. As in, you were your body is about to develop. It's going mm-hmm. to develop, and it's going to get hair, and it's going to get all sorts of things, one way or the other. So by avoiding it, and they could say, well, that was to do with maturity, but it didn't turn out to be to do with maturity because ninety eight percent of them ended up cross sex hormones, or maybe a hundred percent of them. So mm-hmm. that that avoidance tactic just seemed so un anti psychological. And um, I, I thought, well, if if the entire premise of patient A was because of avoiding puberty, how the hell did we get so mixed up into gender identity? Why couldn't we call this a spade, the spade, what it was, which were these were very distressed people who were afraid of puberty. I've often thought of the phrase puberty phobic, you know, wow. a lot of them are, yeah, they're afraid of their puberty. They're afraid of growing up. And how, why, why aren't we calling this what this is? Maybe this isn't anything to do with gender identity. And maybe this is a huge fear of growing up. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I think that's such a good point. And presumably, too, I mean, when you have a 16 year old, there's so much going on. A big thing that we didn't really ask about was you know, sexual orientation, because we know that gender distress can be an actually a normal, distressing, but normal part, typical part of later consolidating homosexual identity. So I think about this 17-year-old girl, what is going on with her? It's kind of making me think about Susan Bradley when her patient zero transitioned. And later on, she said, you know, if I had gone back in time, I would have introduced her to like a group of a lesbian support group or something to meet other women. So, I mean, when I think about DeVries' patient zero, I have so many more questions and her answer didn't really satisfy those questions. She basically just explained this person was distressed and we knew how to stop the puberty. Yeah. And further, another patient that Susan Bradley described was a patient who fell in love, who was gay and everybody thought was going to transition. Everybody was completely happy that they were going to transition. This was a trans kid who was going to transition. And then that child fell in love and went, oh, no, it's all right. I don't need to transition. It's cool. Mm -hmm. Off I go. And it's like, oh, wow, because that's a game changer. That yeah. stops everything. That literally, because honestly, I do believe in the healing power of love. And I know I I sound very 
I'm in dangerous ground when I talk about it, but but it it I it changed my life at a pivotal time, and I think I it's, it's very healing. I think it's very <sighs> healing. You know? Well, what well, isn't it sad that it, you feel like you're on dangerous ground to yeah. talk about love? That's really I sad. I, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And just to go back to this patient zero, a really important question you asked about was the long-term follow-up because we don't have um, s- studies with long-term follow-up, but we do have case studies. This one. Um, this one. And so after 20 or 22 years of transitioning this kid at 16 or 17, they followed up with this female person who had terrible shame around their genitals. And had only attempted kind of a relationship once and it didn't work out. So essentially this person, I mean, to be fair, we don't know overall how happy this person was, but they failed in relationships, so to speak, and they had great distress around their genitals. And, and when shame. you think about this, shame, shame and, and kind of distress about their genitals. And when you asked about this, they said a couple things. They said, first of all, well, it's body dysmorphia. So they they believe in some very interesting compartmentalized way of looking at the world that the gender dysphoria was cured, but now they have genital body dysphoria, which we could talk about that for like two hours alone. And also, (laughs) they said, well, the person didn't regret it. Mm. And you said, you said something important about regret, which is most of the time regret is not a meaningful way to assess if something was a good idea. Because people invest everything into going down the path that they started. And this is a path with incredibly serious consequences and implications, and there's no turning back. Yes. So you would almost never find a person who goes down the regretful thinking path because what other choice do you have? You have to keep going. You're here. What are you going to do? You're in your 30s or 40s. And I, I don't think people have got And to ask about regret is probably missing the point. And it's a very easy way to kind of, I could say to anybody who came to me as therapy, did you, do you regret coming to me? And they'd say, I'd say none of them would say, oh, I don't regret coming to you. Did it help? Would be a much more um, mm. apropos kind of question. But that 22 year follow up, she looked, uh, DeVries looked quite shocked when I said, I didn't think it was a great success that child, that person like didn't, you know, had, like you said, genital shame. And she like, like there was two major switcheroos that happened in this, um, in this interview. One was moving seamlessly with the one long-term follow-up we had from gender dysphoria to body dysmorphia because uh, they weren't happy with their genitals, even though this was the cross-sex hormones genitals, if you follow me. And it was just a seamless switch. Oh, well, their body dysmorphia caught up with them. And it's like, that doesn't hold water. You you know, that that doesn't, you cannot let that go and say that's a successful study. That's a study that brings up way more questions than it brings answers. And just because mm-hmm. the patient doesn't regret it is frankly, it's not enough it's not deep enough and it's not explorative enough really for it. But obviously the second switch, you might want to jump to that, but the one I'm honestly gunning for is the the gender dysphoria scale. It was the most shocking moment since I've got into gender of, you can explain it because it's just, it's mind blowing. I think this is important and I actually have the scales pulled up so we could just help the audience understand. So first of all, as a general, like if you take a research methods 101 graduate school course in psychology, you will learn that when we assess an intervention and we we implement a battery or we give a, a, an assessment before and after the intervention, you should use the same exact scale or else you're talking about comparing apples and oranges. So it's like if I gave you one kind of happiness inventory before the intervention, then I did my therapy with you and gave you a totally, totally different set of questions. You can't compare them. Okay. So before the intervention, the females in the study were asked things like, are you satisfied being a woman? In the past 12 months, have you felt that it would be better to live as a man? Or things like, have you felt that you don't have in common anything with other Uh, men or women. So these are really sex-specific questions. Are you comfortable using the women's restroom? Um, 
Have strangers ever treated you like a man? That's interesting because that is a question about whether or not you are perceived as a masculine person. So the kids were asked female-specific questions. So it was sex-specific. And then after the intervention, they switched to the sex scale for the other sex. So females were then given the male scale, which says, every time someone treats me like a boy, I feel hurt. I feel unhappy if somebody calls me a boy. I feel unhappy because I have a male body. I dislike urinating in a standing position. So help me understand that. A female on hormones is now all of a sudden standing to urinate? Like these questions don't apply because they're not male. And further, of course, any of the questions that was to do with I hate being a woman, they are female, they would have answered high. So they scored high on the gender dysphoria at the beginning before they had any interventions. Then they were given the switch and they were asked, do you effectively, do you enjoy feeling like a man? And they said, I love it. And so suddenly yeah. they were told, oh, that means your gender dysphoria has reduced. Whoa. There's even a, a question here about erections. I dislike having erections. Yeah. So it, it's, it was it's, a completely it's... flawed system. The entire system. And don't forget, for, for people who haven't studied it as in-depth as us two, the, the, this study, these two studies, the, the 70 children started with 70, ended up with 55 children, two studies, 2011 and 2014. The entire concept of puberty blockers rests on these studies. That's number one. Number two is they don't show any significant statistical advantage for depression or anxiety or other kind of um, distress. The only thing that really came out of that study is the gender dysphoria is massively reduced. And then we realize, oh, my God, the gender dysphoria scale was was based on a very, very flawed system of giving first a girl scale and then a few years later, after the inventions, interventions, a boy scale. And of course, they go to answer one way for the girl scale and a very different way for the boy scale. And that is not the way to say gender dysphoria has reduced. Because if you'd asked this little girl who, first of all, biological girl, if first of all, she would have said, I hate being a girl, I hate being perceived as a girl. If she had been given all those interventions and then been asked, do you hate being a girl and hate being perceived as a girl? She would have said, yep. She'd say yes. Yeah. She'd say, of course more. I hate it. Probably more, because very often yes. all those interventions focus the mind. She would have been more sensitive, more obsessed, more intent and intense about it. So it actually could have gone the other way. And the entire premise of this puberty blockers experiment is based on the so-called success of these gender dysphoria scales. And I'd like to add to that, not only... Would gender dysphoria uh, results look different had you used the same scale? You could have used their method of switching scales and gotten a positive result without doing any <gasps> medical intervention. Oh my God. So let me read. Let's just let's think about the typical dysphoric female. Think of yourself when you were a kid. Yeah. If someone asked you this question, Every time someone treats me like a boy, I feel hurt. Nope. No. I'm thrilled about it. I'm a king. I feel unhappy if someone calls me a boy. Nope. I feel thrilled. The idea that I will always be a boy gives me a sinking feeling. No. Yeah. So you could have done this exact same study without touching a puberty blocker. No surgery. And even further, imagine if this girl, this hypothetical girl, did the girl gender dysphoria scale at three o'clock on a Tuesday. At half three on a Tuesday, if she'd done the gender dysphoria boy scale, it would have she she would have yeah. scored low on the boy and high on the girl because she hated being a girl. So it's it's a, an appalling, an appalling, flawed system that has given flawed results and that has set sail into the world. Uh, an entire concept that has caused devastation, an absolute devastation. And what was shocking was none of it, none of the conversation with DeVries and Steensma was about 
they have this gender identity within them and we need to let it out. They, they didn't talk about that at all. What I noticed, more so probably from Steensma than, than, than De Vries, I noticed he felt like these are a very distressed population. Mm. We just have to alleviate their pain in whatever way that we need to. Okay, maybe it's cross-sex hormones. And he was very much like, yeah, maybe it's a very difficult life. But these people are probably going to have very difficult lives and we're just relieving their pain. And in this palliative kind of way. And I, yeah. I, that was the attitude. It wasn't about there's a gender identity within them. And I'm like, mm. okay, so you started the entire concept and this was about relieving pain around puberty and then became relieving pain around these people who you honestly, as far as I could see, they they honestly didn't think had much ahead of them. I remember I said something about whether they might have been married. And I know marriage is a, a basic kind of measurement, but he very much took, Steensma very much took me up in it and said, you know, basic, these people aren't going to marry. You know, these people are really, really distressed, Stella. You don't mm-hmm. seem to understand how complicated their lives are. And mm-hmm. that, to be honest, that brings me to where Anne Lawrence was, but maybe you have a lot more. Yeah, no, I, I do have more. I mean, I found that interesting because there was the argument that like, well, these people are so unusual, which goes back to the exceptionalism of trans that you often talk about. They're so unusual and their 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 disorders are so severe that to expect a normal romantic life, that's a tall order. Like, why would you expect that from such distressed people? But then later on, Steensma said something like, in fact, um, the young population that comes into our clinics, some of them are not distressed at all. They're very supported from a young age, and they trust that by the time puberty starts, they will be helped. So actually, some of them are absolutely not distressed. Yeah. So that was combined with what Steensma had been talking about was mind-blowing because you're basically saying the super distressed get it, the not so distressed get it, puberty blockers for everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can't parse those two arguments like, well, they're so distressed, they have to have it. But then they're not distressed at all because they know we'll give it to them. Do you know what I found interesting was um, uh, and it kind of reminded me of Rita Kerto Kaltiala, which Mm -hmm. was uh, there was a feeling and I feel that we were slap bang therapists, psychotherapists up against the medical model. And it's like, where's the tick list? Where's the scale? What do you score? Okay, you score 47. Very good. Over to you go. You know, and it's there was very little interest in psychology. And any of the interest in psychology was just like a passing reference. And yeah. it's kind of nothing to do with our work. You might as well be talking about what you had in your sandwich at lunchtime. It was just like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, what's their scores on the scales? And let's um, follow the protocol. And Rita Curta, you know, had her psychological insight going, it didn't quite make sense, but we thought we didn't understand it. So she was more, much more questioning yeah. about it. Yeah. But she definitely had that kind of, I think when you work in a clinic, I've worked in a, a residential home for, for, for young boys and you can get into this clinic mindset. And mm-hmm. I think, frankly, I didn't like the experience because I felt it was, it was a very us and them. We're the healthy mm-hmm. ones. They're the distressed ones. Mm-hmm. And it can be it can feel quite derogatory. And I felt it was very much the clinic mindset that we were hearing. They're yeah. over there. What's the number? Yeah. What's the scale? Let me see. Yeah, okay. And I, I they just didn't have very much interest in, in seeing that these are real people who have wives or who have mothers, who have sisters, you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they were they didn't go there, I didn't think. And, and to add on to that, you know, when we I asked them a question about counseling and Steensma gave us, you know, this kind of retort that we hear all the time. Counseling doesn't work. Psychotherapy doesn't work. There's no room for it. And he he went on to say, well, the information we have in this field comes from adult transgender people. So he said, you know, when they report puberty was so hard, it would have been nice to have puberty blockers that's that's something that you know if you're not paying close attention can seem like a very reasonable deduction but actually there's some assumptions built into that which which we can't actually make ethically first of all the assumption is that none of the children that they're treating could have ever outgrown their dysphoria so the children we're seeing are exactly like these adult transitioners so again i think How the do question we know? Existence is not is not at all a big enough concern the way they are looking at this. And then secondly, the assumption is that the adult person 
And their recollection of puberty is a good basis on which to predict what's going to happen to these kids. So again, like as though they're the same exact person. We're talking about like a totally different generation, a different human being, different sex ratio. And then also, like we talked about earlier, that an adult who is transitioned and has invested so much can somehow retroactively guess yeah. that earlier intervention would have been helpful, but, but really they don't know because they're only who they are now because everything happened at the time that it did. So you can't know that. It's kind of this sliding doors kind of idea. Oh, if if I hadn't, if I'd had a different mother, I would be this. And if I had a different, yes. if I'd gone to a different school, I, I would be president of the world type thing. And it's like, really? Are you sure about that? Because maybe you would have been exactly who you are. And maybe you would or have still. Or worse. I mean, yeah, we don't know. A lot worse. Maybe you would have been distressed and obsessed and in, in a very different way. And it's it's it feels frankly, and I know I won't be liked for saying this, but it feels a little bit privileged when you've got your fertility and you've had the benefit of sexual development and the ability to orgasm, to be able to look back and say, I would give it away and therefore I sh we should take it from other children and their ability to have children is 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 uh, reduced or eliminated and to have a good sex life is reduced or eliminated. It feels so inappropriate and so magical thinking and it's it's not it doesn't have a place in serious for me in serious psychological support for somebody yeah it's a total hypothetical i mean it's a complete complete hypothetical it's like one of those if, if hitler had been shot it's like you know you can't yeah. even it's, yeah. it's interesting to talk about in a pub but that's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as far as it goes um it does yeah. do you have more to say about that because it really reminds me of where Anne lawrence went is there more to say about the reasons, Steve? Because I know we could talk about the we, we have. could talk about Let's them forever. We spoke about we them have. for the entire last. Let's week. keep going. Let's keep going. Let's yeah, talk about Anne Lawrence. I tell you, and we might go back if, if and we'll probably go back many times. But the thing about Anne Lawrence, which I thought was fascinating, there were so many things. For starters, um, it, it was a lovely conversation. It was very interesting. And then in the last ten minutes, it suddenly went left. It suddenly went to a very different place where she said that. If she could, if she was speaking to somebody who was 14, that she would suggest that they should castrate themselves with uh, a scalpel. And uh, it, it was so shocking. It was like, I wish it had been said at the beginning of the interview because we would have explored it in so many different ways. Instead, it was said at the very end where we went, literally both our mouths kind of dropped. It was like, what, 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 really? And then I think of DeVries and Steensma and their attitude. And it made me think, OK, so this is the thinking, if you follow me. This is the zone everybody is in, where me and you aren't in that zone, Sasha. And mm -hmm. uh, it also made me think about obsession and how much of this is OCD rumination and, you know, obsessional and obsessive and compulsive behavior. And mm -hmm. why don't we bring that into this? As opposed mm -hmm. to talking about gender identity, why don't we talk about obsessiveness and um, a feeling that it's appropriate to be obsessive about one specific thing in your life when there's yeah. many, you know, as Stephen Levine said, we contain multitudes, that it, it's not really an uh, appropriate way to see it. But yeah. That's where I went with the Anne Lawrence. What did you think? Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I have more to say about that, but I'm thinking, so I'm still kind of thinking about the dismissive nature, yeah. the, the dismissive attitude about counseling in mm. general. Mm. And I know, like, you know, Anne Anne Lawrence, Lawrence also had this that. bizarre, yeah, bizarre yeah. experience with a therapist. And, and I asked, like, well, had your therapist been like this or like that? And you know what? That's another sliding door question. So bad on me for asking it. We don't know. No. A person can't predict what years of depth counseling can do to them unless no. they've been in years of depth counseling. And yeah. I know, I, I know from working with clients, it can be life changing and, it and it's be not years. for everyone. Yeah. It could be, Oh, it takes years. I mean, the clients that I have that I think have really benefited from therapy, it's years of therapy and difficult work and intense therapy. Okay. So you can't actually tell somebody, had you had great counseling, yeah. what would have happened? They have yeah. no, no clue. 
Um, so I, I just found that to be really interesting. And the way I experienced that statement from Anne Lawrence was really shocking. And I, I think it explains at least in part the depth of suffering that Anne Lawrence experienced the debilitating experience of having this very unusual autogynephilia experience, which just really stands out as being qualitatively so different than homosexual uh, autogynephilia or sorry, sorry, homosexual, transsexual, the Blanchard typology. It is just different. It's so different. And it's really um, an extreme kind of desperate attempt to alleviate suffering, which, I mean, I don't think, as a therapist, I can't see that as being actually your best go-to option. I really do believe in the power of therapy and slowing down and trying to understand yourself. But again, from the perspective of someone who's just trying to collect information, this is an expression of extreme suffering. I think so. And I think, you know, there was something about the way she spoke that it was very evocative that you could feel there's extreme suffering behind these words. When she said, I would Mm -hmm. tell a 14 year old, it was very considered. She must Mm -hmm. be in her, I don't know, she must be in her 70s or something. This is somebody who's lived long. And right. It's not an impulsive 18 year old. No. And she transitioned at four in her 40s. So she's she has the long view and came to yeah. such an extraordinary, what I would say, pretty insane um, viewpoint uh, at that point. And it made me think that, um, OK, it really reminded me personally of you can speak to somebody who's deep in the depths of anorexia and they can seem incredibly sane. You can talk to them. They're very high functioning, so they can talk about Ukraine and they can talk about politics and they can talk about literature and they're very, 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 very adept and they're very sane. And there's one place in this very sane person's mind that is absolutely crazy and will actually kill them this week because they haven't eaten. Do you know what I mean? That, that, and yeah. that can be, you can speak to an anorexic and they are perfectly lucid and they're perfectly, mm. they're, they're, they're saying on every box except eating. And they're, that mm. is a complete and utter, an absolute devastation of a psyche. And that's where I landed when I spoke with Anne Lawrence, when we spoke with Anne Lawrence and she said that it was just like, I've, I've experienced that before with other people who are so perfectly sane on every level. And there's one one set square in their life that is so crazy, it would lead them to anywhere, if you follow me. And that's where I think about obsession, compulsion, people just getting like literally just manacled to one idea yeah. and they can't get out. And that's what this is about. For me, this is about obsession and obsessive thinking and compulsive behavior. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. I agree, and I think the layer I'd like to add on to that is I read Anne Lawrence from the first few words as being quite aspie. Anne Lawrence was clearly brilliant. The level of depth and research and analysis that she has done into autogynephilia is unbelievable. I mean, she has amassed this incredible collection of reports and and research. And I read her as being really, really aspie. Her mannerisms, the way she talked, the way she moved her body, the way she put her words together. And that kind of obsessive rejection of like a body part or a specific idea or something is not unusual in in really intelligent Aspie people. 
And I, of course, I, I'm not in any way claiming to diagnose anybody. I'm just saying my kind of visceral reaction and from years of working in the field, this is how I read Anne Lawrence. Okay. Definitely. And I'm thinking about what Susan Bradley said. You know, she she talked about how the patients that she used to see, they were originally kind of all labeled borderline. And now she looks back and she thinks these are probably high functioning autistic people. I know the word high functioning is even controversial, but let's say low support needs autistic people, people who are doing otherwise really well for the most part can engage socially like everybody else, but have these certain traits. And I think this, I really believe this is the missing piece. And as Hakeem thought so, and Susan Bradley thought so, and I really feel like this is the piece that we need to understand better to look at this experience of gender dysphoria and perhaps kind of add a layer of complexity and, and understanding to it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think she was, Susan Bradley was very interesting about the moving from BP, from by, from borderline personality disorder over to autistic um, um, traits or else ASD on the spectrum. I do think that, you know, we're, we're, we're not finished with our autistic diagnosis framework. And I think so much has to be done. And I think, you know, in 10 years or in 15 years, there's going to be much more, I hope, much more um, maybe categories within this huge spectrum, which frankly, you, you, you know, they say often you've seen one more autistic person, you've seen one autistic person because they're all so different. But some mm-hmm. of them have very definite common traits. And mm-hmm. if there was a typology that people could refer to, and I know they got away, they did away with Asperger's and I think it's a pity that they did. Yeah. But I, I think we really, I think people could recognize themselves. I'm not into diagnosis. I don't really like it. I find it quite limiting. But I do think, one, we need way more typology around um, autism. And two, will we come up with a whole new kind of diagnosis that will be around obsessive thinking and high functioning kind of um, abilities, but um, uh, a, a kind of a yeah, obsessive thinking and high functioning abilities. You know, maybe autism, maybe everybody's going to write into me and say that's autism. But maybe there are, we don't know what point in history we are in any one of these diagnoses. We don't know what we're going to come up with in the next 10 or 15, 20, 30 years. And I look forward yeah. to it. Do you know one thing that occurs to me that is it's kind of part of this? Susan Bradley gave a very good analysis of the long picture. And so did Anne Lawrence, as in they've been mm-hmm. doing it for 50, 60 years. They really, mm-hmm. really knew their stuff. And I'm there thinking everybody is kind of presuming that uh, the Dutch have it right. And the UK, I know the CAS report came out today when we're recording today, but the CAS, the interim CAS review came out and said that the UK Tavistock, which is the largest gender clinic in the world, um, aren't being as um, careful as the Dutch. And the, the implicit assumption is that the Dutch are being very careful. And you hear it often about um, the American model. It's not as careful as the Dutch. And yet when you and I, Sasha, when we spoke to DeVries and Steensma, I didn't get this strong feeling that the Dutch were this super model that we all needed to be chasing. I felt, no, that they set the model and um, actually the UK and and others are following it. I'm not not convinced. Mm -hmm. There Mm -hmm. is acknowledgement for psychological treatment, but there didn't seem much emphasis. None, none. I don't think. And they didn't clarify. What does that look like? What do you consider psychological treatment? I mean, one thing I've learned from Jonathan Shedler is that a lot of different things are called therapy and they can be vastly different from one another. And the types of elements that make a therapeutic relationship helpful to people is actually quite precise. And it's not necessarily included in things like CBT necessarily. It doesn't mean it's excluded, but the relational aspect and all of those things. Um, And you're right. And what I think is interesting about that point is that the reason the Dutch research is sometimes pointed to as like model is because of the supposedly carefully selected population, meaning that they had very low mental health issues and they were kind of doing well functionally. And you were right to point out there was clinically insignificant changes in functioning. The changes that we saw in the Dutch study 
between their function pre and post intervention was so minor, it's barely even noticeable on a scale. But, but it was interesting that when you asked them about their carefully selected cohort, they said, no, they weren't carefully selected at all. It was like the first come, first serve. Oh, so yeah. I, I, I think that's interesting. I don't even know what to make of it. I don't, I don't really understand. It, it felt defensive, but I don't know why. I don't know what they were defending against. Um, I think, oh, let me just say something. One more thing about the Dutch. They didn't. <laughs> know who we were when we interviewed them they've never listened to any of our I was thinking that they were probably googling us certainly I thought Steens was googling me (laughs) as we were talking to him so I think they didn't know what angle we were coming from and the way they perceived some of our questions I think they thought we're more activist and more social justice oriented, and we're more affirmative oriented. And we were critiquing them for not being affirmative enough because when they said, no, 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 this was just first come, first serve, we didn't carefully select them. I think what they were trying to say is you can indeed apply our research to the current population. They don't need to be carefully screened. I, I don't know. I'm guessing. Because, of course, we're now mind reading. Yeah, but the but way the- they said, no, they weren't carefully screened. We didn't select them. They were just the first people who came to the clinic. They were definitive about that. They were definitive. This was consecutive selection. As soon as they come in, you're next in the study. You're next in the study. And um, they they definitely thought we might be more kind of, I, I don't know, zealous, zealous on some level, because I remember when we were talking about the scales and I was getting very hot and bothered about the scales and Steensma consoled me that like, yeah, the non-binaries wasn't attended to and that it needed more attendance. And I was like, that's not where, my, that's not where I'm landing at all. Yeah. And uh, then I do remember uh, when we pushed them yet again on the scales, um, Steensma definitely said, well, the good news is we're not using that scale anymore. And I thought, okay, that's that's kind of qualified good news because yes, that's good news. However, the entire premise of this experiment is based on studies that are referring to these two flawed scales, which effectively he was implicitly acknowledging as not being appropriate because now they're not using those scales. It really felt as though they they started with the hypothesis that these kids need these interventions. Not because of gender to, identity, though, but because of distress, I think, in, in yeah, puberty. Is d- that right? the, the distress avoidance kind yeah. of attitude. And then design the study in a way to try and elicit such results. If they truly wanted to be neutral and inquisitive and find out what can we do to intervene with this dysphoria, they would have had a control group. Oh, yeah. They would have actually tried real psychotherapy, but none of that was part of the study. And uh, there, I know DeVries mentioned quite a lot about the long-term outcomes are going to emerge. She's doing clearly doing a study of those people and is, I would gather, kind of happy with the results. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you would be because you're going to give them a scale that's going to kind of make sure that their gender dysphoria is massively reduced. So I'd be confident if I if I was her, if you follow me. And I, I kind of think that's not fair, because um, if if you look at that, that only follow up that we have, I, I you know, that I think there's a lot of complexity being missed. And I did feel speaking with them, this is clinical language. This is from the clinics and it's very much. Forget about the complexity. Let's just talk yeah. about the, the, they seem happy enough. We've alleviated the pain next. That's that's, that's right. Yeah. It, it felt really dismissive to me. And I, I think I even asked a question like, are you saying that these individuals can't expect to have a normal, healthy life? You know, mm. and it it was, it felt, it just felt like they hadn't really thought through what if, what if the whole premise of this is flawed? Like that question keeps coming up for me and we didn't get to ask them. So wait a minute, what do you think gender dysphoria is? And what, what do you, do you think, think of gender identity? Is? Yeah. yeah, what is a gender identity? Because apparently 
I think Steensma is now really interested in research on non-binary identities. Like, well, what does that mean? They did say, you know, the binary has really changed. Like, are are you saying that you agree with the binary changing? Like, it felt like they were kind of riding on the wind, like whatever's (laughs) next. It felt to me a little bit. I'm from Ireland and they're from the Netherlands and we're small countries And it felt to me like they had landed in, because of their studies, two studies, let's not forget, two small studies of the same population, and they'd suddenly become world-leading experts. And they felt thrilled, as you would, I, you know, absolutely extraordinary place to be in in your work. And they were protecting it. And they were uh, very um, pleased with themselves, is is how I felt. And um, they were rolling with everything that rolled with their work, if you follow me. And um, I I can imagine how you would be in that position. You'd think, wow, everybody just loves everything I'm doing. This is great. And you're kind of going, okay, yeah, maybe everything we're doing is perfect. And actually the non-binary and the trans explosion has gone our way. Well, who are we to question it? Look at the results. The results are great. And then think of somebody like Steensman DeVries meeting somebody like Anne Lawrence and they'd all agree with each other and they'd all tell each other that it was all perfect. And that must be WPATH enacted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm remembering when they were talking about the early days of blocking puberty. And I think um, she was saying that Cohen Kedanis said, you know, in order to come investigate this with me, we just need open minded people. Yeah, you know, that was very interesting. I'm thinking about the the principle of Chesterton's fence, you know, that that um, it basically it means that we shouldn't actually change something unless we have a really clear understanding of what the current state of affairs is or what the current system does. And so when it comes to something like, you know, puberty, unless you have a full, rich understanding of like, what does puberty actually do for a person? You need to consider that when weighing the risk of blocking it. Because they they seem to be kind of like chasing something, like you said, to to alleviate distress. But when you look at the person as a whole person over the lifespan, throughout all of these layers of functioning and, and experiences that we have, puberty is not like getting rid of a pimple. I mean, the way they talked about the human body really gave me a bit of the chills. And maybe I'm a little bit of, um, you know, squeamish when it comes to surgeries and medical things, but talking about the body in such a flippant manner, talking about the vagina colon, like this, like it's like buying a purse. Like I found it so disturbing and maybe cause I'm not a doctor, like maybe doctors do view the body in this more anatomical way. But as a person who understands the importance of sexual function and the kind of integrity of your body working well and hearing also reports from older transgender people about the complications that come along with these procedures. I found it really off-putting to hear them talk about the body that way. When they spoke about the colon, the colon vagina or vagina colon, it was shocking, and I think we didn't quite know what to say because it felt like, well, we could just stop right here and let's discuss what you're saying because this feels like quite extraordinary. And there was definite pride in that's working quite well. And then we brought up Jazz Jennings and said, well, actually, this whole experiment isn't working well because by blocking puberty, you don't have enough penis as such to um create the vagina so now you're looking at colon vaginas and their answer is yes and colon vaginas that often happens a very bland kind of attitude towards problems rather than realizing this is a dev i remember watching jazz jennings realize in front of the surgeon actually you know that puberty blockade we put you on that's caused a huge amount of problems and now really surgery is looking really problem and you could see her face and frankly i've watched this program in a in a quite an obsessive way and um, sh- her weight went on, you know what I mean? She, she her, her weight went on 
in and around this because she was really kind of, you could see her just thinking, this is not what I was told. There's a concept called cruel optimism where you just tell people it'll be grand. Don't worry, it'll be great. Yeah, it'll be great. And, you know, she, she was walked and talked into something that um, was not what she got in the end. You know what I mean? She was she was she was told you can be a girl. Don't worry. Just wish hard enough. We all love you. You can be a girl. And it hasn't worked out. It's been really, really difficult for her. Yeah. Had Jazz Jennings been in the study, they, they would have given this kid the female scale and said, now that you're a real girl, how happy are you? And that would have been the measurement on which they determined the they've cured the gender dysphoria. Yeah, but then here is the real Jazz Jennings. And years look at later. the depression, the obesity, yeah. and the distress. And you know what I mean. I, I, I've to be honest, I've nothing but sympathy for Jazz. I think, I think she's um, had a yeah. I think she's a, had a really hard, hard passage. She was told it's easy; you can just be a girl. And she was four and went, "Okay, great," because you're allowed to do that when you're four because that's magical thinking. Um, I, I, I think as well when we talk about the reason Steensma and Anne Lawrence. And then you think, and then as Hakeem had his circles, you know, his therapeutic groups, and it's like, okay, okay, DeVries and Steensma and, and Anne Lawrence, there is another narrative. Enter as Hakeem with the group mm-hmm. therapy that mixed people mm-hmm. who had trans for years and people who were thinking of transing. And God bless Ad- as Hakeem for having the kind of the, the intelligence to do this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not having that slightly, I can't think what is the word. It's a very cold and on high attitude of we're the doctors, you're the patient, we'll alleviate your pain, here's some drugs, goodbye next. Because that was the, the vibe I got. And then as Akeem thought, this is a human mind, let's mix it all up, let's talk about ourselves. That kind of feeling of what's going on for us all here, let's explore it mm-hmm. in a very open way. And the big, I, I worry that in 20 years we're going to be asked, you and I, Sasha, well then, you knew about as a circles, well, why didn't you run them? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's the kind, it feels like the, go on then, what, what's stopping you? And I suppose we're just in the trenches doing so much at the moment. It feels like the thing that needs to be done. You know what? I don't know if we need a different episode for this. I'll just (laughs) say what I'm thinking. Um, I'm going to veer left here. So please bring me back if if we need to. This is such a, a confusing topic, depending on how you look at it. If you look at it from the perspective of bodily autonomy, you know, oh, yeah. I'm aware that DeVries talked about emancipation a couple of times. I'm not sure how I understood that phrase. I thought maybe linguistically, maybe coming from the Netherlands, she means it differently. But but if you look at this as an issue of bodily autonomy, it means remove barriers, including psychological barriers, to access to this treatment. If you look at it from the perspective that I think you and I come from, it's like, be really mindful of preserving the person's body and their psychological understanding of what's going on as a top priority. Like those seem to be our things. But I'm thinking like if we were to run groups, I promise you that somebody would say it's like taking women who want an abortion and putting them together with women who regret their abortion and making them have those groups before they get the abortion. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how there's a parallel there, depending Very on how you so. look at yeah, it? I do, yeah. It's it's almost like the detransition is treated like an ex-gay person or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't agree with that framing, and I'm so glad, actually, that detrans awareness would have already happened when this goes out, but I'm so glad we're starting to raise more awareness about it. But Depending on how you look at it, you could say, why are you trying to scare trans kids from transitioning? Well, these weren't the transitioners he had in his group. These were people who were having difficulties with their transition. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah they, they were. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But it's like, why, yeah, you know, I'm somebody fair, yeah. might say, why not only expose them to the happy possibilities, you know? Yeah. And, and to be fair, like, I think 
psychology is very powerful. And I do think we have to treat it carefully. Like, for example, I would never want to work with a client and just scare them about what's coming down the pipeline. Because frankly, I think we have a lot of opportunities to make our own future. I really believe that. Whether somebody transitions or not, I do believe that we should instill self-awareness and self-compassion and um, you know, being careful and thoughtful about your life and not being feared by or ruled by fear. Like I really believe in those principles. So I guess it's just, it's so complicated because I think within the gender critical community, if we want to call us that, it can tip into a fear mongery place. And I'm very aware of that. And I just, I'm mindful of it all the time because I work with some young people who are going down that pathway of medicalization. And it's it's just very tricky trying to hold all of this at once because I really believe this is a medical scandal. Mm-hmm. I really believe it is. I do too. I do too. I think, you know, the truth is is the best way. And, you know, if we were ever to do these circles or if other therapists, which I hope they are, are thinking of doing them, <laughs> there could be real merit in having, you know, people of all different types who are in a ther- therapist circle, you know, a therapeutic circle. So it could be some people who are happy to be trans, some people who aren't, who've had a huge amount of difficulties and some people who are thinking of it. So it would be uh, a kind of, but why would the people who are happy to be trans, why would they be in a therapy? They'd be in a group. group. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It, it's kind yeah. of, but then I think, honestly, I think of um, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and lots mm. of people who are perfectly happy. And there's a concept within theirs, which is you give back. So you keep turning up really for, and I know plenty of people who do, they keep turning up at the meetings really for everybody else because they remember how hard it was. So you could kind of, it could conceivably be that. I do think you're right. I think there's going to be a lot of people who transition and our, our, our understanding of the issue is going to gain a lot of ground and some resolution will happen. Um, I, I think it's quite likely some resolution will happen. What I fear is how much of the culture wars are going to happen between now and the resolution inevitably mm-hmm, happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, Paul Vassi was lovely when he spoke and he 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 really showed us a community that have managed to integrate uh, gender nonconformity into their world in, in a beautiful way. And he was quite definitive saying no. In males, what? to be fair, in males, gender nonconformity oh, in males. It was a little yeah. bit shocking. Anytime I brought up the females, he was like, yeah, them? <laughs> what about them? What? What? <laughs> Much as I love you, Paul, <laughs> was a definite. Well, well, I suppose yes. Well, I think I think he's saying statistically <laughs> yeah, yeah, the numbers are much them. smaller. Yeah, but yeah. I, I hear you. Yeah, but I, I thought what was very interesting about that was that they have a, a good, strong culture that has integrated gender nonconformity in males, and it works. And he was very definitive, Paul Vasey, on saying. But no, it, we can't bring that over to Western world. That That's not how it works. You can't supplant. You can't just create that. And we seem to have a much more rigid um, concept of what's your framework? What's your, you know, what's your group? What's your label? Where are you? There isn't. I always think there's a derision and a dismissive attitude to bisexual. And it's the, it isn't there. It really, mm-hmm. it really feels like there's no room. And I feel that's where we should end up, really. I think that's where I'd love the world to be much more, much less rigid. And I feel it's a very male framework, this whole, who's the homosexuals, who's the heterosexuals, hands up, into mm. your corners you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, um, I think you're right, but also... I mean, you've touched a lot on the medical model. I think the difference in Samoa is that they don't medicalize this identity. It's mm. not medicalized. Yeah. And the levels of body dysphoria seem to be lower. So I, I think we have a gift and a curse in being the most medically advanced nations in the world. You know, I, I know, like, for example, 
people in Egypt, you know, where my family's from, they look to the West as the authorities on like how to treat medical things. If you have a problem, you want to go to a U.S. hospital. Like it's, it's really held up on high as the authorities on medical things, but it can be a little bit of a gift and a curse, right? Because we've medicalized everything. Yeah. And so we have a lot to learn, actually, from different kinds of cultures and different ways of thinking about nonconformity. I felt our 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 discussion with DeVries and Steensman was the medical model versus the developmental model. And yeah. it, was, it was a duel between the two. Yes. And that was ultimately. Yes. And yeah. I, I, I favor the developmental understanding of, of things. But what, what jumped out at me with our with our conversation with Paul Vasey, as well, and I think we kind of floated over it, and I'd love to if we hadn't. Was when he brought up Laurel Hulbert and the weightlifting, and he said, "You know what? In Samoa, they weren't happy with that. The Prime Minister actually spoke out about it because Laurel Hubbard, who was a privileged white, rich, middle-aged, um, you know, born biologically male person, beat two Samoan." Weightlifters, and I remember that extraordinary picture of the two Samoan weightlifters. Women, yeah. Yeah, women to the left and the right of Laurel, who had won the New Zealand kind of New Zealand championship for weightlifting. And they both had their faces down and they both looked furious. And it felt very race. It felt, oh my God, it just felt really regressive. What was going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. with this white man in the middle? Well, that's what mm-hmm. I, I perceived mm-hmm. it. Now, I, I, I'm sorry if I offended him. And maybe, you know, Laurel Hubbard is whoever Laurel Hubbard is. But that's how I saw that. And I was really shocked when Paul Vasey pointed out that this did not go down well in Samoa. This culture that is so good at integrating gender and integrating a feminine man and really like the Fafafine are these, you know, you know, scenario in in Samoa, they just looked at this Laurel Hubbard beating the two Samoan weightlifter females and said, no. Yeah, the prime minister of the country gave um, a statement to the Samoa Observer, which is a paper there. And he said, this Fafafine or man should never have been allowed by the Pacific Games Council president to lift with the women. I was shocked when I first heard about it. So again, this really brings together our series because we need to remember the way we understand this gender nonconformity is somewhat of a construction, not the gender nonconformity itself, but the way we understand it. And even in Samoa, where there is the fafafine, they literally have a recognized third gender. They know that the biological reality of sport is so necessary to keep distinct. The world leaders, you could say, of understanding <laughs> the kind of the 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 feminine man, the you know what I mean? Yeah. Said no way, no way should this be happening. So we rolled over that, and I, I really wish we hadn't. But um, we are coming to the end and we're going to take ourselves a little break, Sasha. I think we're going to talk about this many more times for those of you who are interested. I've no doubt we'll be reverting to all the things we learned in this Pioneer series for months, if not years to come. (laughs) Yeah, we I was actually catching up with our friend Benjamin Boyce and we were talking about the work we're doing in the podcast. And he said, so when are you guys (laughs) wrapping up the season? And I, I paused and I said, what, what's, a, what's a season? And he said, well, aren't you guys going to take a break? You know, like you have this season, then you take a break. And I was like, oh, that's the best idea I've ever heard of my life. Neither of us in our 70 episodes over 70 weeks thought about this. We are either we are insane or we are obsessed or we're workhorses or something well, wait, wait, wait. along those lines. We're definitely lines. obsessed, but there might be and. <laughs> So let me let me just uh, give our listeners an idea of when to expect us back, because we are going to be taking at least, I think, five weeks off. We're going to take a proper break. Yes. And when we come back. that's good for our mental health? It is good for our mental health. (laughs) Yes. I've loved loved doing this, but I need the break. I think the Pioneer Series took a lot out of me. I I was surprised. It took a lot. I can't wait. Me and you 
shooting the breeze about gender. I can't wait. But I need to I know. I know. Same. And we we have been in the back of our minds kind of nurturing a lot of other great podcast ideas. We've had so many amazing listener recommendations for whole episodes, which we plan to do. And we even have some ideas of other interview series that we can do. So we plan to be back and release our next episode on May 20th. So that will be number 70. This is episode 69, Stella. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) How appropriate. (laughs) Just a little crude joke there to leave everyone off. We're going to finish on a classy note. (laughs) (laughs) It's been really great to talk to all of these interesting, super experienced people. And we have so much to think about, so much on our minds. And I think having a break will give us a chance to refresh and regroup and come back with some fresh ideas. Excellent. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 